We are going to be back in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 will be in verses 17 through 21. Uh, That's page 1014 in the little black Bibles around you. Um, And so please stand as I read God's Word. Starting in verse 17 of 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that for this purpose your faith and hope are in God. Lord, thank you for this word and this exhortation from Peter. Lord, we look forward to uh, diving into it together as your elect exiles here at the crossing. But first, there's a couple people I want to pray for in our body. First, we want to pray for little Wes, who who has some second-degree burns, Lord, and for the Andrews family that happened yesterday. And just be with Dave and Kristen as they continue to love and serve uh, their their child right now through this this difficult time. We pray for quick healing. We were thankful that we have a great burn center in Greeley. And so Monday, tomorrow is when he has his appointment or whenever that appointment is, Lord, that they would take care of that little boy and he would heal quickly. And then also for Grace Moore, she's been out with maybe something like an inner ear affection, infection or something along those lines. Well, we pray for healing for her as well and be with Don as he cares and loves his wife. Lord, we know that you are Jehovah Jireh, the God that, that heals. And Lord, you, we also know that you are a father that cares for your children. You hear our prayers right now and we pray for you to answer them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Well, we're going to dive right into 1 Peter. We all know from the last couple weeks that Peter, the apostle, is writing and penning this letter to us. And Peter's probably uh, in his 50s and 60s year old. Uh, He's been, um, uh, it's been about 30 years since Jesus uh, was ascended. So the last time that, that Peter saw Jesus was about 30 years ago. So he has a good sample size of life by living through the truths that Jesus taught him when they were together. And this morning we hear some more of those truths, some more of those uh, points that impacted Peter's life. This morning Peter calls our attention to the reverent fear of the Lord. This is something crucial that he commands us to listen to and obey so that our lives will be rooted and established in the wisdom of the Lord our God. Proverbs 9, 6 says this, the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So let's dive into this passage today and learn from Peter. The point and the main focus of this message is going to be in verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear. That's the main point. Last week we were exhorted by Peter to what? To set our hope on the grace of God that's coming to us. And then we we're also commanded to, that our lives should resemble that of our adopted father. And that we should pursue a life of holiness and wholeness. 
And as you recall, we, the motivation for this is because by the mercies of God, by the love of God, we have been born again, verses 3 through 12. And this week, again, Peter calls us to fear God. Again, the main command, the main exhortation in this passage in verses 17 through 21 is found in verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear, Peter says. Conduct yourselves with fear. Well, then the question is, well, what is this fear that Peter is talking about? And so that's something we want to unpack real quickly now. To fear the Lord means to be amazed by the majesty of God's godness. It means as we look at God, as we think about God, as we meditate about God, as we read about God, that we stand in awe and wonder for who he is, for what he has done, and for what he will do. It has this idea of reverential fear. So we have these things of reverence, awe, and fear that all kind to come together to unpack that word fear of the Lord. Now, Reed and I, um, we always loved going to the zoo since we first dated and we first got married. And when we were first um, pregnant with our first child, uh, Taylor, way back in the 1900s, we went to the zoo in New Mexico. And we love the zoo, so we're walking. It's just me and her. It's like, man, I totally forget what that used to be like because we have five kids now. But we're walking and we're enjoying the, the sounds of the zoo and seeing the animals, you know. We, we hear the birds chirping and the monkeys are doing what the monkeys do. We see these families. We see kids laughing. I mean, you know, all the sights and the signs of the, the sights and the sounds of the zoo. Then all of a sudden, we heard this massive roar, Right? Have you ever been in the, the zoo and all of a sudden you hear that massive roar? It's like it just reverberated through the whole zoo and everything almost went silent. Then I asked my wife the stupid question, because there are stupid questions. It's like, did you hear that? You know, duh. And so immediately, again, she's, she's pretty pregnant. And so we like, we, we got to get over there. We got to see this, right? And so she waddles over there real quick, you know, and we get there. And, and, and there is this lion. He's lying on this rock, and he's just roaring, right? And, and we, we just stand like, man, this is incredible. Why? Because, because that's why you go to the zoo, right? You go to the zoo to see these big cats. Um, and I personally go to the zoo to see the hippopotamus, because I love the hippopotamus and the, and the silverback gorillas. But we go to see the big cats. The problem is, most of the time when we go see the big cats, what are they doing? Sleeping, Right? Because they tend to sleep 23 hours a day and 55 minutes a day, however that works out, right? So anyways, there, there was this lion, just majestic, you know, just roaring. And we were just standing there in awe. And then, all of a sudden, he stopped. He stopped roaring, and his eyes went directly to where Rita and I were. These big golden eyes. And then he got up. And then he kind of came down from this walk and started walking towards us. And not just walking, but almost like stalking us. And his eyes were fixated on Rita, right? And at first we're like, man, this is awesome, right? But all of a sudden he gets to almost that, the edge and he's just like dialed in to my wife. And all of a sudden it started to get a little bit uncomfortable, right? Because I was like, this thing wants to eat my wife right now. <laughs> and so, you know, there's hundreds of people there because when a lion roars, the whole zoo comes to there. And so 
you know, we're packed, but, but everyone also recognized that this lion was looking directly at my wife. And so they just started to move away from her like this. <laughs> and we're like, holy cow. So we're like, all right, time to leave, right? And so we're walking and we're just leaving. And this lion is just like shadowing us and just dead looking at Rita. Is at this moment we understood the feelings of awe, respect, but also fear, right? Have you guys ever had those emotions at the same time? Reverence, awe, and fear. Maybe it was like the first time you went and you saw the ocean, right? You go and you see the ocean, you see how vast it is. You're like, man, this is incredible. I never knew how big this was. And then you get in there and all of a sudden you get in the waves just start, you know, tossing you. And you're like, oh man, this thing has power. There's a, there, and then it maybe gives you a little bit of fear because when he tosses you around, you don't know which way is up when you're in the water. Or maybe it was the birth of your child that you, you sit there and you see the child that is born and you're like, man, how awesome is it? You stand in awe that God knitted this little child for nine months in your wife's womb. And then all of a sudden you're struck with the fear. It's like, oh man, now it's my responsibility to raise this child. All wonder, fear, all wrapped in one. Well, this is what the fear of the Lord is. Now, the major difference is when we talk about the fear of the Lord or fear of God the Father, we are not terrified or fearful of Him because He wants to to eat us and because He's evil, right? No, we fear Him because He is so holy. He is so other. He is so pure. And it's actually kind of tough for us to, to wrap our minds around, like, how can we be afraid of something that is so good? But yet, this is what we see in Scripture. It's all over the Bible, the fear of the Lord. From beginning to end, we see in, in Genesis chapter 15 with Abraham. Abraham encounters God the Father, and, and God has to say to Abraham, hey, fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Then we go to the end of the Bible in Revelation where the apostle John is, is confronted or, or is, is, is in heaven with Jesus, or, and um, he sees the glorified Christ And when he sees the glorified Christ, Revelation chapter 1 says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But I love this. We see the the comforting factor of Jesus. says that Jesus laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not. Fear not. So awe and fear. I think C.S. Lewis does a great job in describing this reverential fear and what we're trying to pull out of this. You guys remember from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Lucy has this conversation with the beavers, right, about Aslan. Lucy asks this question. He says, is Aslan quite safe? I shall shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mrs. Beaver says, that you will, dearie. And make no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's what? He's good. He's the king, I tell you. And this is the definition of the fear of the Lord. A reverential awe, fear of who God is, what God has done, and what God will do. He is the all-powerful king. 
So it's with that definition, when we see that word fear here, that Peter wants to then unpack this for us. And so that leads us to our first point. We have a reverent fear of the Lord because of who he is. We have a reverent fear of the Lord because of who he is, verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So Peter says this, if you are one who calls on the Lord, that's one who prays. If you, that's, that's a sign of an ex, elect exile. That's a sign of someone who's been born again. Someone who calls on the Lord. Someone who prays. If that is you, then for the rest of your time on earth, you shall be led by this reverential fear of God. And why? Because God is your Father who impartially judges all of your life. Now, the one thing about this judgment of all your life that we see here is very important to, to point out that this is not in regards to your salvation. What, what Peter is talking about here is not in regards to your salvation. That has already happened. You've already been chosen as an elect exile. You've already been born again. You've already been adopted by God the Father because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. So therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not talking about salvation. It's talking about those of us that have been saved and now looking at our life. And what Peter is trying to point out is just because now we've been adopted and we are a child of the king, because we are a child of the king, that does not mean that we can now live like spoiled princes and princesses. In other words, Peter is saying you don't live as if he is a permissive father and doesn't care what you do. He cares extremely about what you do and how you act. So you don't live as if he's a permissive father and therefore try to get away with living a loose life. This kind of goes back to what Paul was talking about in the end of Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 6, where Paul says, hey, when, when there, where there's sin, what, what, what abounds? Grace abounds. And so the next question in Romans chapter 6 is, well, well, then if grace abounds when I sin, shouldn't I just keep on sinning because I'll get more and more grace? And Paul says, no, may it never be. May it never be. This is what Peter is getting at. We should have a reverential fear of the Lord because he is our father, but he also is a father who will discipline us. He will discipline us like any good father does. Any good father disciplines their child. But when he disciplines us, he doesn't discipline us out of anger. And he doesn't disappoint us because he's, he doesn't discipline us because he's disappointed in us. No, he disciplines us because of love. Hebrews 12, 6 says this, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. So what this verse is doing is it's going to help you and me, um, it's going to help us to, to run away from sin and run towards holiness. It's going to help us run away from sin and towards holiness, verse 17, because the key word there is conduct. It should remind us, that, and we should point it back up to verse 15, where it says this, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in what? All of your conduct. So Peter is connecting conduct, this word conduct, or conduct yourselves with fear through conducting ourselves in holiness. So when temptation comes your way, when temptation comes my way, our desire will be to conduct ourselves with a reverential fear and to resemble and desire to resemble our holy father in heaven and to run away from sin. So this is how it will help, we help us practically. 
When you feel tempted to cheat on that school test, this verse will tell you, conduct yourself with fear. When you're tempted to, to gossip about that coworker with other coworkers, Peter says, conduct yourself with fear. When you're tempted to get frustrated with your kids, Peter says, conduct yourself with fear. Remember, you have a good father who will judge all of your actions and will discipline you. Therefore, conduct yourself with fear. So that's the first point. Second, we see we have a reverent fear of the Lord because of what God has done. And this is where we'll spend the most of our time, because of what God has done, verses 18 through 19. Verse 17 says, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, verse 18, knowing. Peter says, knowing. He wants you to know something. We, we know something. We understand. We, uh, we experience something. Well, what is it? That you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited by your fathers. This is what Peter wants us to know, and that we do know, that we are ransomed from the futile ways here. Peter's command for us to conduct ourselves with reverential fear because we know we have been ransomed, or another word is redeemed. This is one of the great gospel truths of the Bible, this idea of being ransomed and redeemed. So what does it mean? It means this, to, to set free... Or to liberate a prisoner by paying a price. That's what ransom or redeeming means. To be set free or liberate a prisoner by the paying of a price. And, and back in this time in the Roman era, it was, it was used for buying back or purchasing slaves or prisoners of war. Or prisoners of war. Now we are all pretty familiar with this idea of being redeemed, being bought back, being liberated because of price that has been paid for us. But there's something I want us not to forget, because we tend to always look at the end result of redemption, and that's us being redeemed, which is amen, yes? Yeah, we want to be liberated, and that's where we focus our attention. But what I want us to do is I want to focus on the Redeemer, and in particular, I want us to focus on his motivation of redeeming us. Why does God the Father redeem us? What is his motivation to redeem us, to redeem you. Well, why does someone redeem or purchase someone out of prison? Why does someone pay the price of silver and gold to purchase their freedom, their liberation? Why do they do that? Because they love them. Because they see value in them. That's the motive. So therefore, take that, stop and meditate on that, when you think about your redemption, my redemption with God. God redeems you because he loves you. God redeems you because he sees value in you. Isn't that amazing? That's a great thought. That's an incredible thought. And that thought alone should stop us in our tracks and be in awe of God's love. Why? Well, because we, apart from Christ, are not very lovely, are we? We were in prison because of our sin. And we didn't have the resources or the ability to purchase our sin. And here's the other thing. No one else did either. And no one else did want to purchase us or pay the price for us to be redeemed. We were doomed forever. Simply put, we were unlovable and had zero value. But God. 
But God saw value in you. But God loved you. And that's why he redeemed you. That's an incredible truth. And I hope you hear that loud and clear this morning. Personalize it to yourself. God loves you, values you, redeems you. Probably most of us in here have seen the shows on like HGTV about uh, people that flip houses, right? The fixer-uppers. I'm not a big construction guy, but I'll, I'll sit and watch those shows, right? Because it's amazing what they do. These, these, these people, they go and they buy these broken, dirty, condemned houses, right? But why do they do that? Because they see potential. They, they see value in them. And then so far, they pay a price and they, they fix them all up. And I think this is a great ex- illustration of God in, in seeing us and how he redeems us. God sees you. God sees me in our, in our sin apart from him. And we are broken. We are dirty. We are condemned. Yet what does God do? He sees value in us. He buys us. He purchased us, and he wants to recreate us to our new creation design. And he purchased us with his blood, and he begins to rebuild us from the inside out. So I want you to hear that this morning when we think about redemption. Yes, the end goal is that we are free and we are liberated, but don't miss the motivation of the Redeemer. You are valued. You are loved. Therefore, he sent his son to die for you. Well, Peter says that we have been ransomed from our futile ways. So we're ransomed from something, our futile ways, uh, inherited from our forefathers. That word futile means empty, useless. I like the word aimless, aimless. Uh, In other words, uh, apart from Christ, our lives were going in the wrong direction. We were aimlessly wandering in this world. We were chasing after hopes and dreams that would not satisfy us for any significant time. We would say, oh, that looks good, so let's go after that. And we go after that, and we get there, and we taste it, and we see joy for a little bit, but then it would fade away and be like, okay, reroute. Oh, let's go after that. So we go after that. Again, reroute, because that joy was not there. We were rescued from the futile ways that we inherited for our forefathers. This goes and takes us all the way back to Adam and Eve. Adam, who by believing the serpent and not God, stepped us off the path of life and joy to a path of aimless wandering. That has been what's been passed down for generations upon generations that we have inherited from our forefathers. But again, the good news is that our aimless direction has been rerouted because of the redemption of Christ. And this has cost God everything. Our rerouting to get us back on the path of life and joy costs God everything. Look at verse 18. He says, we've been redeemed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, we're in such a bad state that silver and gold could not purchase our redemption. Only the very precious blood of Christ could purchase our redemption, could redeem us, could ransom us. It says, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Throughout Scripture from the very beginning, the lamb has been what we call the substitute for the atonement of sins. 
uh, in Israel, we see this in Genesis chapter 3. Well, before Israel, in Genesis chapter 3, we see that the lamb was the substitute for the people that, were temp- that would temporarily atone for their sins. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God killed an animal and covered them with their skins. And most commentators believe that this animal was that of a lamb. Because we see in Genesis chapter 4 that they were, they were sheep farmers. So what we see is we see one lamb for one person. Then when Israel was constituted in Exodus chapter 12 during the Passover, uh, the lamb was killed for each family. And each family put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. So when the angel of death would come, those with the blood of the lamb on their doorposts would be saved from death. And we saw that one lamb was for one family. Then when it got to the promised land, the Vicus 16, on the day of atonement, the lamb without spot or blemish would be sacrificed for the sins of the whole nation. And the lamb's blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat. And what we see is we see one lamb for a whole nation. And then we come to the New Testament. We come to John chapter 1 where John the Baptist is baptizing people in the Jordan. And all of a sudden he sees Jesus coming. What does he say? He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The sins of the world. How precious is this Lamb? He takes away the sins of the world. One Lamb, Christ Jesus, for the whole world. That's how precious His blood is. His blood is so precious, it costs God so much, that because Jesus... Because of that, Jesus would be the perfect lamb without blemish. What does it mean that Jesus was without blemish? It means he was without any inherent defects. He was not born in sin like you and me. He was without blemish. He was without spot. What is a spot? A spot is an acquired defect. And that means that Jesus was without sin when he walked on this earth. He would be and could be the only perfect substitute for our redemption. For us individually, but more importantly, for the whole world. For every person who ever existed. This is how powerful and how precious Jesus' blood was. The Lamb of God who was slain for the sin of the world. That if every person who was ever created repented and trusted in Christ, they would be saved. They would be redeemed. They would be justified. They would be ransomed. Christ's blood would cover every person's sin. But not everyone repents, so it's only efficient for those who do repent. For those who do repent. This is how precious the blood of Christ is. Again, back to the 1900s, there was a book written by Consumer Reports, 1996, right around there. And it was labeled, How to Clean Practically Anything. How to clean practically, anyone have that book in here? How to clean practically anything? Kind of, not, I say it's okay. So what it does is it just looks through a number of ways on how to clean anything. So like, say if you've got crayon stains, it says like get some vinegar, rub some vinegar on the crayon stains. Vinegar will take out crayon stains. If you have like mildew stains in your, in your tub or in your sink, wherever there's some water, you know, take some bleach, spray it on the mildew because bleach gets rid of mildew stains. And then if you have any rust stains, you use what? Lemon juice. Lemon juice to get rid of the, uh, the rust stains. But there's something missing in the Consumer Reports book. There's nothing in the Consumer Reports book that says this is how you take away sin stains. But guess what? There is in this book. There is in this book. In this book, 
It tells us how we take away the stains of sin. 1 John 1, 7. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sins. How do you get rid of sin? The blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. That's how you get rid of sin stains. The precious blood of Jesus. We sang it this morning in a number of songs. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He goes on to say, Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is why Jesus' blood is so precious. Because it's not Jesus' good moral life that saves us. It's not that Jesus was a good teacher. It's because Jesus shed his blood for you and me. That's the cost of our redemption. One said this, Therefore, Peter is telling us, reverential fear is heightened by the believer's grateful awareness of the, priceful, of the priceless cost of their redemption. So the question is to you and me, do you know that truth? Do you know that truth? Are you covered by the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for you? If you're not, well, today is the day to take care of the sin stains in your life. And you do that by trusting in him repenting of your sins and saying that you are the one who saved me on the cross. Your death, Jesus' death, saves me from my sin. And if you've already done that and you're a child of the King, again, this should sober us and and should lead us to what? Joy, worship, thankfulness, and a reverential fear. The precious blood of Jesus is the thing that ransoms us. Third, we see this. We have a reverential fear of the Lord because it's always been the plan. It's always been the plan. Look at verse 20 and 21. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This has always been the plan. Jesus, the Christ, the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world, it was always the plan. It says that he was foreknown. What does that word foreknown mean? We know it means predestined. He was predestined by God before the foundation of the world to come and spill his precious blood for you and for me. We went through the book of Genesis uh, last year and and we started in Genesis 1-1. And we remember in Genesis 1-1 that God spoke and he created this incredible world. I mean, it was awesome. It was beautiful. He crafted it. It was exotic and there was nothing but joy and happiness because sin wasn't around. But then in Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve sinned and it looked like all was lost. But what we need to know is Genesis 3 didn't catch God didn't catch God by surprise. He didn't say, uh-oh, you know. He didn't say, uh, hey, Jesus, why don't you and I pray for the next week and fast to see what we're going to do about this problem, right? No, he didn't. He knew it. He planned for it. He ordained it to happen. 
This was the plan all along. And Jesus didn't become a redeemer after Genesis 3. No, he's always been the redeemer from eternity past. Acts 2.23 says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus was delivered up to according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It's always been the plan. He's always called and come to be our redeemer. And so Peter's just saying, hey, sit back. Think about the cost of your, de- of your redemption and your ransom. Because this gets real practical for us. It gets real practical, practical for us in our lives today, right now. This passage informs and guides our path to holiness and wholeness today. How? Bob Thune asks this question, and I think he rightly points out. What we fear, listen to this, what we fear in our lives tends to guide our actions, our lives, and the decisions we make. I want you guys to think about that. What you fear tends to inform your actions and your lives and decisions you make. Let me give you some, some reasons and see if you resonate with anything, any of these. The reason why you and I have trouble forgiving others is because we fear that they will what? Take advantage of us again and again and again. Uh, the reason why you and I don't share our convictions of the gospel or on other social issues is because we fear what? That our non-believing friends won't like us anymore. They'll see us as those weird born-againers, right? Maybe the reason why you're a micromanager is because you fear of not being in control. The reason why you won't engage with sharing your struggles of sin with others is because you fear what? Rejection. Yeah? Can we see that principle, how it's true? That what we fear tends to guide our actions and the lives that we make? You see, these fears that guide us are the fears that are inherited by our forefathers. These are the fears that take us off the path of holiness and wholeness. And here, Peter's counsel to us in this passage is to obey this command and have a reverential fear because it's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And it will set you and me on the right track of holiness and wholeness. It will strengthen our faith, in, our faith and hope in God. What a great little practical application of this passage for us today. What we fear informs the way we act. And Peter is commanding us today to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord. Now there's something else before I finish up I want you to really focus your eyes on. And it's in verse 20. Again, I want you to to see, because right now you might be feeling the tension like, oh man, I'm such a failure. And again, as God is looking at you, he doesn't see you as a failure. He loves you. He sees value in you. He sees you as his child. And the reason why he sent Jesus to come and die and to spill his blood for you and me is because he loves us. And also because, look at verse, verse 20. He says, all this happens for the sake of of who? You. For the sake of you. Get your eyes on that phrase in this scripture. For the sake of you. That's why Jesus came to die. For the sake of you. That's why Jesus has come into ransom. 
for the sake of you. One said this, outside of God's glory, believers are the end aim of the Redeemer. Isn't that a precious truth? Outside the glory of God, believers are the end aim of Redeemer. The reason why Jesus has come and died was for the sake of you and for the sake of me. And that is a wonderful, wonderful truth. And that is worth building our lives on. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great truth. Lord, and it is our desire to follow Peter's command, to conduct ourselves in the reverential fear of the Lord. Because we see what we tend to fear guides us. And so may we be guided by the glorious majesty and the godness of God through the Holy Spirit, informed by your word and encouraged in community. Lord, thank you for Jesus and his blood that was shed for the sake of me and for the sake of you. Amen.